Hey everyone and welcome to the next episode of Diversity. This week we are celebrating the launch of Dink. Dink is an inclusion focused and social and professional networking app created to change the narrative for people from diverse and underrepresented groups to one of obtainable success and accomplishment. They're a free to use community of networks, businesses and people collaborating and promoting positive inclusion and diversity. For more information, why don't you check out www.wearedink.com or download the app on your app store. This week we're joined by the Diversity Avengers, so we've got them back together um, to discuss what's the point in diversity and inclusion. So why don't you grab yourself your favourite cuppa, sit back, relax and enjoy. Welcome everybody to another live episode of the Diversity Podcast, bringing together the Diversity Avengers, which I'm so excited about. We've got some of the original Avengers on the the episode today and some new faces as well, which I'm really excited about. Uh, My name's Chris. I am founder and director of Your DNI. We are a diversity and inclusion consultancy and training provider as well, and the host of the Diversity Podcast as well. I'm very, very honoured and privileged to have such a diverse range of people on the the podcast uh, today. Um, A little bit by why we're doing this live episode as well. So this week, Dink um, have launched their new social media app. Um, So what they've done is created a platform for uh, diversity and inclusion professionals, anybody who's interested in DNI, and it's a safe space to engage with uh, like-minded individuals, as well as um, finding out more about resources, different topics that, that encompass DNI, um, as well as jobs boards, things like that as well. So the guys have done a fantastic job with the launch this week. We're the third in the series of five this week of, of special events that are happening. So uh, big thumbs up to the guys at Dick. So uh, we're going to get kicked off. So my guests are going to introduce themselves to start with, and then we're going to get stuck into the topic of what's the point. So we will start with Joseph Coleman, um, uh, a very, very good friend of mine. Uh, we've been trying to get him on the podcast for a really long time. So, uh, Joe, if you want to give us a, a brief introduction. Thank you, Chris. Hello, everybody. Yeah, as Chris has said, my name is Joe Coleman. I'm an employability advisor for Nottingham Trent University. A uh, big part of my role is guiding students and working with them on how to find a placement. Um, as part of their module and to get them ready for their life after university. So it can be anything from CVs, interviews, oh my God, I'm leaving university, I don't know what I'm going to do. It's a very wide-ranging role, um, which is where I met our wonderful host. Ah, thanks, Joe. Um, And Debbie, we'll come to you next. 
Hello, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Debbie Verdi. I'm Head of Diversity and Inclusion for Women in Hospitality Travel Tech. I'm incredibly excited to be here today. So Chris, firstly, thank you so much for having me and it's great to be part of the panel conversation. Bit about myself, been in travel tech for now, oh, in excess of 20 years, so that might be sharing my age there. Um, really traditionally from hospitality, backgrounds in HR, went into commercial roles, where really my journey of DNI started. So that's where I'm at today. Excellent. Thanks, Debbie. Uh, we'll come to one of the OGs of the Diversity Podcast, uh, Amy. Hello, um, I'm Amy Godin. Um, I've had a career in marketing so far. Um, so working for Fine and Country, Luxury Estate Agents, um, the Hoxton Hotels, um, Smart Tech and Selfridges, and other high-end department stores. And it's quite a sort of lifestyle background. Um, recently this year, I co-founded Become, which is um, a social enterprise um, supporting young women of colour to kickstart their careers and to help companies um, create safe spaces for people of colour as well. Um, I'm also Chief Marketing Officer for WHTT, um, where Debbie is also a part of, um, and I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Cool, thank you. Uh, we'll come to Sadet next. Hi there, so I'm Sadet Gelson. Everybody calls me Sar. Um, my role is the DNI and recruitment advisor for the Emir for a large tech company based in London and the States. Well, actually, we've got quite a few offices, but yes, they're the main hubs. Um, and I'm delighted to be here. Um, thank you so much again, Chris, for inviting us and meeting everybody. Awesome. Thank you, Sa. Um, yeah, wonderful to have you. I think you give some really great insight to um, the, the problem with BAME when we had that, that discussion the, the other week when we launched that, that episode. So uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, and last, but in no means least, Stuart. Hi, Chris. And yes, echo what everybody else says. Thank you very much for having me along. Uh, my name is Stuart Blair. I am the workplace product manager for a company called Texthelp in Northern Ireland. Uh, I specialize in going into organizations and looking very much at the, the neurodiversity side of things and looking at trying to remove barriers to disclosure within organizations and helping them to be more digitally inclusive. Perfect. And I just want to say thank you so much for, for giving up your time, everybody, today to, to join us. I really, really appreciate it. I know everyone's got quite hectic schedules. Um, so with that, we're going to get stuck in. And it's a conversation I've had with a few of you already, um, the, the topic that we're, we're discussing today. Um, Obviously, there's been a lot of press recently around aspects of DNI, uh, especially in different governments across the globe. We have Trump, who's trying to, to block DNI training for everybody. Um, and we have the Tory party, so the party who lead our country, refusing to do unconscious bias training with some really derogatory remarks coming out of that from uh, members of parliament. So with that in mind, and with obviously a lot of people watching what's happening in the world at the minute and what's happening within the country, what's the point of diversity and inclusion? If governments don't seem to be taking it very seriously, why should we? Amy. <laughs> I was just thinking, <laughs> I need some time. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the point? I mean, I think it harks back to kind of why it starts in the first place. You've got to think about about that and that's just to give people a voice and to make people feel included um, and that's everybody 
and everybody has to feel like they're an equal part of the community, of the conversation, of a particular culture or workplace. Um, and that's how you maximize workforces. That's how you get the most out of them. Um, but that's also how you make people feel valued. And that's really important as, as an individual. Um, and yeah, I think diversity in the kind of uh, modern age, maybe just this year even, um, I'm starting to wonder how I feel about that word itself. Um, mm. It's, it's a useful word. It's obviously been used a lot, but it's it's become a little bit synonymous with this kind of tick box exercise of yeah 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 we've got, we've got Bain <laughs> or we've got or we've got that and I just that for me is slightly problematic um, and I think too often it's kind of used alongside you know quotas and that sort of thing. Um, so I'm just kind of working through myself really how I feel about that word. I'm starting to think that inclusion kind of says it all. Yeah. Uh, I agree. Anybody got any thoughts on on Amy's point there? Um, I I'll go. Um, and, and I think, you know, Chris, just going back to your yeah. question, right? What's what's the point? Um, you know, I look at the public sector and I look at the private sector. Now, my history has only ever been in yeah. the private sector, really. Um, and, and what I fundamentally see, and, and having been in those roles, being a change agent myself, is that you know business leaders, right, across industries, right. There are some industries that are well versed in others, some sectors who are, you know, light years ahead in this space, yeah, versus other sectors. The reality is that they're starting to they're starting to understand that diversity equity and inclusion, right? It's all three for me personally. It's not just a nice to have, right? Yeah. It's it's morally the correct thing to do, you know? And it's a necessity yeah. for business success. You know, I, I see the importance of having, you know, a, a really inclusive and diverse workforce. I've, I've had first-hand experience of building teams, of making sure that, why? Because I know that not only does this bring tangible business benefits yeah? yeah when we talk about tangible business benefits you talk about having you know not like-minded you talk about having a varied minded collection of individuals around a room who come up with different ideas right that innovation brings about productivity that productivity impacts an organization's bottom line to some extent right whether that is something that you can see or you can't from an roi perspective so for me, I think that, you know, and if you go back to your question about, you know, programs or training um, that governments are now, you know, that they're shunning away or they just don't feel that they need to be doing it because it's a tick box exercise. Listen, I think the starting point of every organization does differ. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I think you'll all agree with me that, you know, there isn't one silver bullet. Yeah. You can't just stick a plaster on an organization say hey we, we've done that and i think to amy's point you know sort of that whole piece about um it, it's a tick box a tokenism gesture more than anything uh, i personally I, I am a fan of unconscious bias training to, to a certain extent why because i think if you talk about the language right um and tell me when to stop because i can go on right, <laughs> right? but you know um Bias was a hard word for some, right? Just like oppression, right? We're talking about the word itself, right? Bias, we know, it's something that people, 
let's be honest, they don't know they have, right? Not because they're bad people, let's be honest. It's, it's because it's their brain's attempt to, you know, to process a lot of data efficiently, right? But the brain takes shortcuts. That's my take on it. And yet those shortcuts can prevent you from being hired. Those shortcuts can prevent you from being getting a promotion, right? And even worse, those shortcuts can get you killed when you're a black or a minority individual, okay? So I'm, it's, it's really important. And, and the reason why I think, you know, certain yeah. trainings are key, because you can't solve it if you can't admit it, right? Yeah. As a starting point, to have an understanding of that. Um, diversity training is helpful, but it's time to move away from just the diversity training, right? Because let's be real, it hasn't gotten us far enough, yeah. deep, deep enough, or quickly enough. Yeah, and I, I think that that's the point around the, the, the lack of understanding or the, the not wanting to. I think that speaks volumes from the government point of view as they're refusing unconscious bias training as a party because I think they're scared to know what their biases are. And I think it's quite hypocritical of, of the party to then a couple of weeks later say that they're going to be running a, an LGBT census. And they're asking people like myself to disclose my sexuality and what I identify as my gender when they themselves don't necessarily know what that means and the biases that they may have against the LGBT community. So, um, yeah, I think there's there's definitely a lot of of work to be done. Um, Joe, do you have any points? Any any views? So I was just thinking, um, there's a, a really interesting point, Amy, about um, using that term um, in in general, the term term BAME, and it's something that we're looking at in one of the task groups that I'm part of at the university. Um, and we're looking at it from a perspective of how many different people do you put together using one of those letters? Especially if you look at the A, for example, you can include everybody from pretty much the Mediterranean to the Pacific and everything in between. Falls under that sort of geographical range. And when you're looking at different people, different faiths, for example, if you're putting them all together, how can you look after them, see cater to their needs and include them properly? Yeah. If you're yeah. kind of attaching them all under the same thing if you're putting um someone from um some from from iran for example with um someone from israel and they have different religious beliefs and different ways of looking at the world um so it's an interesting point that you've raised it's something that we're definitely looking at, at the university as well i i think with that joe as well uh, sorry to cut you off <laughs> um is that obviously we, we, we both work with someone at, at the university, so myself and Joe used to work quite closely together um, within um, employability. I remember one of our colleagues who is um, from India, I believe, and when he came to the UK, he was like, why are people saying I'm Asian? Because to him and to a lot of people, Asia kind of necessarily means more Far East than, than India and Pakistan. So he was like, I really struggle that people saying, oh, so you're Asian. And he's like, that, that just blows my mind. But it's because we've got to the stage where we've packed everyone into one box and then we're just using it because someone looks different to, to white, for instance, that they, they've now got into that that, that group. Um, 
So that, I know we we've obviously spoken about it in in, in previous episodes uh, around around BAME, and it's something that you said you had difficulty with yourself about where do you fit within this BAME box and within society. What's what's your thoughts on what Amy and Joe have said? Yeah, absolutely. I I I struggle with the term BAME. It's um so I yeah I struggle with the term BAME. I I don't know where I sit in that because my mum's my mum is considered white. And then my dad is Middle Eastern and whatever the rest of his DNA includes, um, Mediterranean, North African, or like South American, everything. So where do, so where do I sit? And that's my struggle. My mm. other piece of my struggle is that the term BAME um, does create almost a feminist. And I think that rather than doing good, it might create more conflict. Mm. Um, so again, yeah, I'm not... I guess the term BAME needs to be there to get the world's emotion, as we discussed previously. But again, I don't I don't know where I fit into that box. And then I guess going to Amy's um, point about the term diversity, it's not limited to just the, um, you know, colour of your skin, you know, race or your, your, your heritage. It's linked to um, disabilities, your sexual orientation and, and so forth. So education is absolutely key. And with the government refusing the unconscious bias training, it really does sadden me because um, it, it, it's very important. It's not just a, a, a colour issue as such. Yeah, there's more. There's more to it. I, I agree. Um, I think what what's sad to see as well with with the government refusing this is that working for a university and the, the role that I was in previous and the, the role that Joe did as well is a lot of our job is looking at opportunities for underrepresented students and there were so many of these government schemes that were coming through to have more black students coming into to government or more BAME students coming into government and actually how is that going to make them feel as a minority within government that actually their own boss or, or, or anybody like that is just not willing to have that conversation and, and to really open up about it. Um, Amy, sorry, I, I did cut you off. Yeah, and, <laughs> no, 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 not at all. I just thought that's really interesting what you were saying. I think that's something that, you know, we've kind of been speaking about a lot of become is obviously they've just launched the 100 Black Interns Initiative. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen, yeah. Um, basically, yeah, lots of kind of big, big, big companies have said they would take on, you know, 100 Black Interns or whatever, um, which is amazing in the sense that that representation is going to be there. That's fantastic. Yeah. And I think at this point, we do need something as radical as that just to get people in the door, which is the sad fact, but it's true. Um, however, there's not, uh, as far as I can see and as far as I've done my research on, there's not an initiative in place to actually welcome them when they're there and make sure that the company itself that they're going to has had sufficient DNI training and will be a safe space for them and will let their voices be heard. And on top of that, there's a, there's a clause where it says as well that um, the 100 black interns will then train the next 100 black interns when their time is, is, is done, their internship is over. Meaning you kind of get this sort of separate culture in within a business which i just think you know kind of ostracizes them even more from the the community uh within that space i just think that's quite damaging actually quite negative to differentiate them like like that and also for their personal kind of um uh, imposter syndrome whatever you want to call it they you know we've only been chosen because they needed a hundred black people that's a lot of people and uh, they needed spaces to be filled they needed black people to fill them um, and that's not I think it should also have a have a merit there. There should be 
you know, a hefty interview process or an exam you can take or something that just makes you feel like I belong here. I deserve it. Yeah, I, I, I agree. You're almost kind of creating a culture of kind of, well, you're black, so you'll understand. And yeah. like, they'll listen to you when actually that that's not the purpose of it at all. Like you want people to feel included within their organization from everybody. So if you're just paying people off because they have the same skin tone or they're, they're from a similar background or, or, or kind of culture fit, then that's not progress. That's not yeah. pushing the agenda, moving the agenda forward. Um, Stuart, what do you think to, to what we've been discussing so far? Yeah, I, I would be nowhere near as much as an expert as the other panelists here as far as being is concerned. Um, but I, I do have a couple of interesting questions on what I've picked up on. Um, the, the, the reference what Amy was, was talking about there, you almost want the individuals coming into those roles as well to be qualified to teach the next generation. So not just that they've been put in a role because of their skin colour and ethnicity, you want them to feel like they deserve and are qualified, potentially even qualified enough to move on to another role or get another job in the future career. You want it to be a roadmap thing, not like you've mentioned there, just segregating someone into one particular part of a workforce. Um, something that uh, Debbie mentioned very earlier on was about different ways of thinking within teams. And actually, that's a lot of what I do in terms of neurodiversity. And there was a study by Harvard Business School that said that teams that had different creative ways of thinking. Um, so for me, very specifically, people who may be dyslexic or autistic, teams that include people from that are 30% more productive than teams that are neurodivergent yeah. and think the same way. Um, so I think that's the same from people's experiences, cultures, backgrounds. They bring different elements and have different big picture, out of the box thinking that I yeah. might not have or, or you might not have, Chris. Um, the only other point in terms of government that I've been thinking, I, in my previous role with TechSelf, I covered the government sector. So I spent 90% of my time going into big government departments and talking to them about digital inclusion, neurodiversity. And what I think one of the big issues with the current government is there's absolutely no consistency between government departments. So how I was treated and how I was dealt with in one government department an uh, example would be the Department for Work and Pensions, biggest government department in the UK, yeah. took us on board and rolled out our assistive technology to 90,000 members of staff, which is incredible. So yeah. they're all digitally inclusive. They have a massive program. They're the only central government department that would do that. So all of the others looked at it slightly differently, even when you've had the lead from the biggest one. And it wasn't yeah. a funding issue. It wasn't anything. They just didn't necessarily see a requirement or it wasn't necessarily on one person's desk to take the lead on it, a lot of cross departmental issues and things like that. So, um, and that's something I went through for about two years with, with central government department. Actually, when you get down to local authority, it's much easier, Yeah, which doesn't make any sense for me because they should be taking their lead from central government. So yeah, yeah that's kind of what I've observed in my opinion. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it, without getting too political, I suppose, I think that's apparent with what's happening in the country at the minute. We've got different lockdown measures and like different yeah. rules from different cities, even though they're in tier three and things like that. No one really knows if we're coming or going at the moment. So yeah. it doesn't surprise me necessarily to hear that different departments in government aren't talking to each other. They're almost set up as different entities and yeah. different organisations. And I think they've got to such a massive size all these different departments that actually we've lost our way a little bit it's a bit like the nhs now the the work the nhs do is incredible however the more senior you get within the nhs and the more kind of 
um, behind the scenes that you get within the NHS. There's lots of different departments doing different things and trying to spend money just for the sake of it. And I heard a, a horrendous story a, a couple of weeks ago that there was a department within the NHS that needed to spend money in order to get the funding again for next year. So they just bought a bunch of laptops because they need and they didn't need these laptops, but they had to spend it on equipment for the office. So they just had to spend the money just so they would get the money next year. So that's fundamentally wrong um, completely. But that's kind of a, a whole other conversation for a, a whole other episode, I think. Um, so obviously as DNI professionals and people who are really passionate about diversity and inclusion and, and kind of real advocates for for DNI, what can we do? So obviously we're hearing a lot of this negative talk from government and, and governments overseas and um, there's a lot of resistance there almost. What can we do as professionals or practitioners or, or advocates to make sure that this momentum is carried on and it's not just seen as a fad. And Amy, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there when we use the term diversity. It's almost become a bit like unconscious bias because people are used to hearing it now, but actually it doesn't really mean anything because unconscious bias has almost been done to death a little bit. And um, you said earlier, yeah. Debbie, is it is really important, unconscious bias, but because it's just been rolled out as a bit of a an HR exercise, um, that people aren't really taking it seriously. So what can we do as, as professionals? So I'm putting the question out to, to anybody who wants to answer. What can we do um, to make sure that we keep on going? Who's taking it? <laughs> I was going to jump in there from someone who's not necessarily a professional within the same industry as you, but I think it's, it's remembering your motivations for why you got into the industry. Um, why you guys decided to be DNI leaders and remember the motivations because those motivations I would imagine hasn't changed. The topics may have changed and a certain spotlight gets shined on a certain area at a certain different time, which which isn't necessarily great, but that's media for you. Um, but, but you look at a lot of people that are being more outspoken now and one of the things that immediately sprung to my mind there was the diversity dance groups thing they did on um, was it Britain's Got Talent or something, and the amount of Ofcom complaints that got. Yeah. Like, I find that incredible. I, I find that a very moving piece of art, if you will, but I find the, the repercussions from that incredible. And, and I think there's a lot of work to be done, probably led by government, to change media aspirations and how these things get a certain spotlight shone on them, but then the legacy feels away. So for me, it would be just to remember, maintain the motivations that you did when you first began this journey, because they probably haven't changed. Yeah, no, completely agree. I think obviously what happened with Strictly at the weekend as well, that we had our first ever same-sex pairing and the backlash from that, some of the comments have just been, like, it just, it blows my mind that there's, that people still think that way. Um, but yeah, Amy, do you have any any points on kind of what we can, we can do moving forward? Yeah, I think um, what definitely motivates me is just thinking like, I, I, I wouldn't want anyone to have to go through anything like what I've had to experience in a workplace before. Um, I think creating that safe space is just imperative and everyone deserves to be, you know, to feel represented and to feel like they have their voices heard at every platform, whether it's on Strictly Come Dancing or in your office job. Um, it's it's really, really important and I think um, it's it's hard not to get bogged down with all the kind of negativity or people saying uh, you're overreacting or that, um, you know, 
um, racist undertones don't exist, whatever they're saying, which yeah. is true. You, you have to just move away from that. And I always quote Michelle Obama here, where I'm like, just rise above it. When they go low, <laughs> you go high. <laughs> and I think that's how you come off stronger, is by um, educating people on things when um, you know you kind of get attacked for something. I don't say, that's wrong. I say, oh, interesting, here's one view on it. Maybe you could explore that. Um, and and just, um, it can be exhausting schooling people. Don't feel like you have to do that. But um, you know, I found, literally having some pre-made examples of things to say can really help because we've all been there when we felt really flustered when someone said something to us and we wish we'd said something and had something ready um one thing that really does get on my nerves is that whole like woke agenda thing so i think when they they said you know they weren't going to do the unconscious bias training and from what i've read from what i've seen i think it was about 40 people in the yeah. party who said they weren't going to do the unconscious bias training um and they kind of treat this woke agenda thing as if it's a negative. Um, and, you know, they've kind of claimed it as their own and used it as this kind of dangerous weapon against people. And that's how I think you can get branded as the angry black woman or, or something like that. Um, but being woke is, is an amazing thing. It implies you're educating yourself about the world and societal issues and the environment and everything. So, um, yeah, saying they won't do the training uh, and don't acknowledge that there's racism in the UK is... is really uncomfortable in my opinion but like I said when they go low we go high. Absolutely I love that. Good old Michelle Obama. <laughs> um, I think um, what's been apparent about this whole the comments about the the woke agenda and kind of this new generation that's coming through I think like you said they're really really powerful and we've now got this generation coming through that just don't care about if they're going to upset people. Like if it's right and they and it's something that we need to do, they are not going to let go of it until something happens. And I think that's why, especially this year, Black Lives Matter has been so, so powerful because we've seen it happen in previous years, but the extent that it's happened this year, and again, I think after what happened yesterday, I think in Philadelphia, I think we're going to see more movement happen on the run-up to, to Christmas. Um, unfortunately, if, if people don't know, another gentleman got shot yesterday, I think, by, by the police in Philadelphia, um, another black man. So it's, we've still got a lot more work to do. Um, personally, I think the, the, the woke com comments that, that come through from... My MP, um, a guy called Ben Bradley, who I've openly spoken about before, um, I have huge amounts of frustration with him because the area that we live in isn't seen as affluent. We have a, a very large population of low socioeconomic groups and, and single parent families and, and single parent incomes coming through. And he will make comments around um, Black History Month, for instance, that because Sainsbury's were doing um, Black History Month events, he was now refusing to shop in Sainsbury's because he saw it as segregation. Um, and in the remarks that were made around free school meals, he said, well, why should we fund people who um, are uh, being brought up in brothels and crack houses and crack dens? And I was like, Number one, is this the 90s? Like, do we still talk like that? Um, and number two, this is most of your constituents that, that we're talking about here that actually come from these low socioeconomic groups who need these free school meals. Like, kids need nutrition in order to learn throughout the day. And the fact that these remarks were being made by someone who represents such a huge area with such a, a, a low socioeconomic group, a big socioeconomic group that... Um, it just baffles me that that these types of comments are, are being made by people who are quite powerful as well. 
um, and, it, and it's terrifying. Um, so I'm lobbying him. That's what I'm doing at the minute. So I've been tweeting him and I've invited him on to, to an episode of the, the podcast to have an open discussion about unconscious bias and about what's actually been going on. I've yet to have a response. Probably not likely to get a response, but I feel like I'm doing something by um, continually lobbying him and trying to, to get his point of view. Um, Sa, what about you? What 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 can we do moving forward? Um, so answering sort of Stuart's question, my sort of motivation for being the advocate in DNI is that I'm neurodivergent, and I think. When I was in, when I started out my career, um, did my first ever job, I did suffer imposter syndrome because I didn't want people to know about my disability. Um, and also the, 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 the environment I worked in was predominantly um, public sector school boys, public sector, public school boys. Sorry, we're talking about public sector, public school boys. So, um, uh, you know, it was a very different background. And because of my struggles there, I just thought it's best if I educate people about how I feel and the challenges that I'm facing to get to get the buy to get their buy-in, I guess. And I think it I think um my sort of turning point was when I sent out an email and an email there was a typo in the email, and everybody, including my line manager, started laughing at this particular typo. And inside, I was just like, oh, my God, this is my dyslexia. I, I've just mixed the words around. I'm such an idiot. Um, so every every thought in the, every negative thought in the book. And yeah. then, I, then I pulled my manager to the side and explained, I am dyslexic. And this isn't, you know, this isn't cool. If anything, you're you're hurting my feelings and causing me to, like, not do as well as I as I can. Um, so that's my reason for going into for diversity or being an advocate for DNI. Um, so education I, is absolutely key because once I did explain my story, once I did um, describe the challenges that I faced and how I felt emotionally, I was able to get um, uh, a bit of empathy from the other, from the receiving end, I guess. Yeah. Um, and and it, it works better. I absolutely did. I, I was one of the highest pillars in my sales days um, for the UK. And this is quite a big firm that I worked for. Um, and it was nice getting people to come up to me and ask me for direction. Whereas if you're a dyslexic person, you, you don't anticipate being asked for direction and guidance. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> and I think that's, I think sometimes with, and, and Stuart, you, you'll know as well with the, the work that you do, being neurodiverse, I think um, sometimes you go in on yourself because you, you you don't have that confidence because someone like like you, Sarah, has put you down because you've made one little mistake um, and that can put you off for life. And actually some of the, the most powerful people and richest people in the world are neurodiverse, whether it's dyslexic or, or, or autistic. So... Um, I mean, my, my uncle, for instance, he um, wrote a book and it wasn't supposed to really go anywhere. And um, he wrote it so he could tell a story to his grandkids. And it was how he left school really, really young. I think he was 12 or 13 when he left school um, and was a bit of a jack of all trades and ended up going into businesses and turning their fortunes around. So companies were losing millions by the day. He would go into an organization flip it and actually make them really pr profitable and he's very very good at what he did he's traveled the world by doing that and um my cousin so his, his daughter has a has a son who's autistic and my uncle 
thinks that he is autistic as well. So because he, he has the same characteristics and the same traits as what what his um, his grandson has. So he has struggled throughout his whole life with with kind of these things that he that wasn't diagnosed, but he's been able to kind of achieve so much. And I think that's that's really really powerful. It's just having the belief in yourself and the commitment to yourself and and just persevering and pushing through. I think that's that's really really powerful. So and he'll probably die a death at the fact we've even spoken about his book or <laughs> live on air as well but um it's a, it's a great movie. it's called uh failure is not final um so it's all about kind of picking yourself up dusting yourself off if something's gone wrong he's had lots and lots of different jobs but finally made it into this organization where he was able to um to achieve what he did and he now lives very happily and very comfortably because of what he was able to do and kind of pushing through those barriers so um a, a real kind of yeah exactly <laughs> exactly um joe i'm going to come to you next um obviously we've known each other for for quite a long long time um i'm very honored that joe's one of my best friends um and uh, a real ally around diversity and inclusion and i think it's really important that we acknowledge the allies as well um because actually they can give us a voice sometimes when when a voice can't be heard by, by the rest so, Joe, as an ally, from your point of view, what can you do or what can allies do moving forward and trying to push the, the, I don't want to call it an agenda, but um, pu pushing forward with regards to, to diversity and inclusion? Yeah, so a big thing that got me into um, diversity and inclusion and, and working with Chris is that I, I would be your traditionally non-diverse um and I, and I put that in big speech marks because actually we're all diverse um but but my, my background um my, my sexuality my age um religion i am i am the traditional non-diverse and for me it's a big thing is understanding what is the resistance that people have to diversity and to inclusion mm. and that is almost half the battle is getting them is engaging with them to understand what it is. And it's very easy just to say, well, it's because they're racist or it's because they're sexist. But actually, they could be the most inclusive person in the world, but it can boil down to something as simple as they don't want to see more competition for job, as, a, as an example. Hmm. So for me, it's about understanding what it is that makes people oppose this kind of thing. Um, so Chris's, Chris's drive to... Uh, Get, it, get hold of his MP. Um, I'd be very interested to 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 find out what he has to say and why um, he's resistant to that kind of thing. So, for me as an ally, it's looking at it from the other side. It's not about what what we can do. It's what about what we can undo to drive diversity forward. If that makes sense. Yeah, <clears throat> I think um, <clears throat> one one of the best examples I've ever seen or come across with a situation like that and an allyship is. The work that we did at Nottingham Trent and we ran the first ever International Women's Week. So we did a, a week worth of events. And we, we ran an event, very successful event, um, called Where Are All the Female Icons, where we got industry icons to come in and talk about their experiences. And when I say icons, there were women in leadership, there were women who'd set up their own businesses. It's who I would describe as, as an icon to me, as someone who, who, I, who I could look up to and who the, the students could look up to. And I remember having a conversation with the director of employability and said, I'd love for you to come along to this event. And he was like, just not sure it's for me. 
Um, and I was like, that's fine, but I'd still love you to come along because it's really important what, what it is that we're discussing here. And he said, I'll come along for five minutes. Um, and he came, he showed up to the event and he still said, I'll, I'll be here for five minutes and then I'll leave. And then in fact, he stayed for the whole session. So he was there for an hour and a half because he was so engrossed by what actually these women were saying and talking about and their experiences and how important it was. And then we went on to have further conversations with members of man management about it and actually what can we do and what more can we do to, to kind of really drive um, allyship within within the career service. And that's when we had the task groups uh, set up. So I, I was on the BAME task group as was Joe and there were gender task groups and things like that, and they all stemmed from these conversations that we had. And I think sometimes you just have to show them this is what's happening right now, and actually their eyes really need to be opened to what's happening right now because a lot of people like to live in their own bubble and they don't like to kind of really address what's going on in the outside world um, because if they do, they then have to do something about it and have to start thinking about it. Um, so I think showing them and kind of getting them to lead the way i think that's that's super important and i think that's something we need to we need to do more um debbie i'll come to you as well because obviously you've had some really senior roles within your, your your career within kind of the travel and travel tech industry um and you've seen a lot of change happen what what more can we do to to continue to to make sure this change carries on <laughs> where do you start um, you know, in, in the from a personal motivational side of things, Chris, you know, it, it's mm. very personal for me. Um, you know, I, I, it's, it's about equality. You know, I want to make sure my daughter has the same opportunities like everybody yeah. else, right? Like the kid next door, right? On both sides and the kid across the road, right? Um, and that, that's the starting point for me, okay? Um, and, and, and that's what I look at is actually it's about if we can't manage it in this generation, it's that next generation, right? Because the reality, it, we haven't, it hasn't happened yet, right? Truth be told, is it really gonna happen in this generation? I'm not convinced. But what I do know is that there are definitely organizations that are making, you know, trademarks and making the, the progression. They are progressive organizations. There are industry sectors that are definitely there. You know, I remember leading a global team in one of the organizations that I was in. It's, you know, it's Europe's largest, biggest hospitality group. And I remember coming in and looking around and going, this isn't right. I need to fix this, right? Because this group, this team didn't reflect who my customers were. So what did I do? I spent two years driving that change. Yeah. That's where my journey started because I was like, hello, high water. This isn't going to happen. Yeah. Not on my turf, it's not. And I think this is what's really important is when you start having, and I'm talking, this is over 10 years ago, right? When you start talking and having individuals that have that, you know, what was work? It wasn't even, there was no such word as work, right? Back then it didn't even exist. <laughs> and I love the fact that all these new terminologies are coming about. Yeah. My question is how long is this wave going to be, yeah. right? Until the next word comes in, yeah? Um, and, and so for me, that's where my journey started. You know, more recently, being an MD for a region, A, I was also the only woman. Yeah. B, I was the only woman that looked like me, right? Um, you know, don't get me wrong, I had some fantastic allies, fantastic support, but it was a pretty damn lonely place to be, right? Um, and that's when I was also very fortunate going into my role, I was there to make a change, to make that difference because of what I had seen. 
But I think, you know, for me, it's, um, you know, yes, there, we go back to this whole training piece, right? Because I know that this is really what, what the stem of today's conversation is about, right? We, we, you know, companies are pumping money into these traditional, they are traditional training methods, right? Um, unconscious bias training, yes, has been done, right? Um, but they're also done as part of this sort of process of the events that have been unfolded this year. That is the reality check that's happening across all industry sectors, whether you like it or not, right? Um, and I think what's really important within a corporation environment, employees are very unlikely to object, right? It's very different to the private sector, yeah. in, a pub in a, a public sector, sorry, because knowing actually if you're going to object to do a training such as that, you're pretty much risking yourself to be labeled, right? Either you're basically not supporting the organization's diversity agenda or you're risking yourself to be labeled as being racist, right? It's one or the other. So for most, it's actually not even worth their career, risking their career, right? It's done. But the reality I also ask myself is, you know, is an hour's training really going to help fix, right? So there's the other question, right, that you do have to ask yourself in the role as a DNI practitioner is, you know, does unconscious bias training actually work, hmm. right? And how much of it? And it goes back to what you've all said. It's education, right? You have to start somewhere. And it, it falls back in line with what I said right in the beginning, Chris. You know, I am a fan of this because I think, you know, you have to educate. It goes back to what Stuart said about, you know, Ofcom receiving so many complaints about the dance tax that diversity had, right? Yeah, because it's the education piece from a society. And, you know, I, I believe, it, and you go back to, it's this whole anti-racism piece when we talk about the society element. Right, because it's it's predominantly that is that that work doesn't necessarily need to be you know divisive, right? Because we can make it all our business um, as a nation, right? As a race, I mean, fundamentally, you know, to eliminate these disparities, to sort of remove the violence that so many marginalized groups face daily, mm. um, and there are so many steps from an organization's point of view that companies can do. I think one of the most common mistakes is that they overthink the process, for sure. I mean, some of the organizations I've worked with recently, you know, the process of even where they start, it's they, 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 they overthink it too much and it's, it becomes so complicated for them. And it's not really that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think um, I've had a few conversations recently and I think, Amy, I was talking to you about it the other day there about integrity when it comes to to DNI and actually as practitioners and people who run diversity and inclusion consultancies is sometimes we, we, we just want to do workshops and a business company says we want to do a workshop because we've got a problem with diversity. Okay, but what is your problem with diversity? Like if we're not addressing that first, then there's no point in running a workshop. So that's why we need, I think we need to be a bit more firmer, I think as, as a collective, um, that actually if a business is coming to us because they want, I don't know, privileged training, for instance. We offer privileged training, but I want to know what is the core root of the need for that training within your organization before I even run that. Because without that, I'm just delivering privileged training. And that could go to anybody, but actually, what? why is it important to your business? And we, we know why it's important to business, but why is it important to your business? Um, and actually, how is it going to benefit you how is it going to benefit your team and how is it going to benefit your organization and your clients as well? I think this is something that we again forget about is that 
a lot of businesses that we work with have clients. So if we're talking about diversity and inclusion, what are we saying to our clients as well? So we're changing everything that we do, our recruitment processes, the way our marketing is done, the way our social media strategies are done. But if we're not talking to our clients as to why we're doing this and they're not on board, then actually what's what's the point, <laughs> which is what we come down to. That's the, 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 the age old question. I mean, Amy, I know you come from a marketing background, so I'd love to hear your insights about some of the the things that you've seen across marketing when it comes to, to DNI and like the lack of authenticity, I suppose, and integrity that, that comes with it. Yes. yes. There's been a lot of performing <laughs> this year, hasn't there? It's um yeah, it's it's got to start internally, hasn't it? You can't um you have to be able to practice what you preach kind of external showcasing of support and you know, claiming to be an ally and supportive and all of that sort of thing from individuals and companies. Um, but you have to follow that up. You have to, you have to really, really be it. Um, and I think especially with this new, the Gen Zs, um, I love what it kind of, you know, again, it's kind of a scripting thing, right? But I, I love what they a lot of them are doing, which is uh, they they will not stand for it. <laughs> they, if, you, if you basically say something, you have to be able to follow up. Like, your actions have to be there too. It can't just be empty words anymore. And um, they will call you out <laughs> a quite brutal public way. Um, it's kind of that thing of like, do you call out, call in? And I'm very much kind of, um, I prefer to kind of privately message somebody first, maybe drop them an email, DM them on Instagram, whatever, and say, oh, I think you could improve on this aspect, or this is yeah. what I feel about this, what you're doing. Um, I give them a chance to, uh, to kind of rectify it first. Um, that's my personal way of, of handling it. I don't really agree with the kind of witch hunts no. that have been going on on social media, in my personal opinion. It's just quite, it's quite aggressive, and I think, especially when it's targeted at an individual, with everything going on mental health-wise right now, I think it's just quite a sort of tricky thing. Um, I think there's a way to do it um, that's like that. Fair enough. If they then ignore you, you know, by all means, go in. <laughs> I think it's going to take change at the end of the day. Um, but, yeah, I think it all boils down to um, action, actively anti-racist, not just I'm not a racist because that just doesn't do anything. So, so prove it and actually do something about it. I know we've had conversations about the black boxes on Instagram and and things like that. What is your follow-up? What is your commitment to make sure that actually you're educating yourself um, and ensuring that you're not racist um, mm -hmm. and ensuring that actually you're supporting people of colour through what's happened this year and, and through oppression and, and through everything that, that that's going on uh, yeah. and actually supporting people I think that's that's really important and I think it's sometimes when we talk about organizations and we talk about marketing businesses a lot of the time just get so wrong um it, in my eyes anyway when we come to pride month for instance and it's oh we've got the pride flag up on our logo and that's us done our bit and actually what the hell does that mean like what are you doing throughout the whole year to support your lgbt plus community within your organization if you changed your logo to black for what happened earlier on this year what are you doing what's your commitment if you're talking if you're changing the the, the color of your, your building or your lights to purple for international day of disabled persons what are you doing what's your commitment this is what i want to know as a professional and when we're having these conversations okay so we're doing all these things what is the outcome it's not just a case of it, we're showing solidarity. You need to be doing something about it. Um, I don't know if you can tell I'm a little bit passionate about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you 
it's so true. Like, and I think, you know, to be clear, a lot of companies are doing amazing things. And yeah. you can some have some kept quiet and some said um you know we're just gonna you know we've been reading we've been educated we're gonna go away and we're gonna reassess and we promise we'll get back to you and i've seen a number of the companies that promised that come back now and say this is what we've been doing we've had our dni workshops we've been doing this 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 and this we've been donating and um, all of the things that came out that would be you know a useful way to support and be an ally um, so there are companies out there doing it right, but there's also a lot of displays of companies doing it wrong as well. Yeah, com completely agree. Uh, so from a, a recruitment point of view, have you seen a difference over the last six months with the types of candidates that come through um, with regards to diversity or has there not really been much of a change? So I don't, at the moment, I've not really done recruitment recruitment at the moment in my current role I'm more say working on pipelines and doing the DNI piece but I do have public sector recruitment experience for about 13 years and I've worked with loads of central government departments like the ones that Stuart had mentioned DWP HMRC Ministry of Justice um, and when I did work for these organizations or contracted to work with these organizations there was little of me walking into a room with a lot of <laughs> A lot of men of a particular of a, of a particular type. Um, so I did go in with very quite hesitant. Like, you know, these guys are not going to listen to me because we don't. We, there's nothing that connects us. Um, but I managed the accounts, and and what I used to do was basically present data and presenting that data. So actually, listen, this is what you're doing, and this is what you're attracting. So there's obviously there's an issue here because why are we only attracting say three percent from uh, you know, from the non-white, non-white, non-male background, that that's just not right. We need to change avenues of advertising, avenues of attraction, um, and diversify those means um, to to generate more diverse candidates. And I think using that sort of data to educate those that who are unaware of unconscious biases, you know, who 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 think, okay, we've put in our adverts, you know, BAME applications welcome. That's just not good enough. It's about going into the various areas and educating yourself on, on, on what is unconscious bias um, and the various feelings associated with that. I think Prince Harry recently said something on, um, said something at, the, at The Guardian or this week on my Instagram feeds. And he mentioned that he, although he was incredibly educated, you know, came from the same sort of background as most of our MPs, I guess, um, or similar, he'd never experienced unconscious bias until he was married yeah. to his wife. Um, and that, you know, that just goes to show actually um, there is a need because you could have all the education in the world, but if you don't know the real sort of ground root of, of what's happening, then how educated are you? <clears throat> yeah, m most definitely. Um, Stuart, I suppose, posed a, a question to you in the, the, the line of work that, that you do as well with regards to neurodiversity do you see inquiries coming through kind of in peaks and troughs with regards to kind of certain trigger dates throughout the year so obviously you have autism awareness day and and there's certain dates that we talk about neurodiversity and then it kind of it's a buzzword i suppose for for part of the year and it kind of fizzles out do you do you see kind of a difference in inquiries and things like that when when that happens um Bluntly, no, not really. Um, but I, I think that that's maybe not necessarily due to trends. I, we see tremendous amounts, um, very sector specific.
specific inquiries coming through if we happen to have been doing outreach in that specific sector. I think a lot when it comes to neurodiversity and probably a lot when it comes to being as well, it's about, like we've talked about, education, awareness. Yeah. Um, to, to pick up on what Sas said a bit earlier about uh, being dyslexic, a lot of what is around that is hidden disability. And I think for individuals, if they have a hidden disability, they, they can't hide away themselves. So it scares me that outspoken person, that confident person, because they're, they almost feel like they're scared of being found out. Um, yeah. One of the things that Amy mentioned and, and when she was speaking earlier was about culture. Uh, and one of the questions I wanted to pose back to her, when it comes to organizational change and organizational culture, do you think that needs to be a top-down approach? Do you think that has to come from the most senior people within the company? Or do you think people at middle management, junior people can affect change? Interesting. <laughs> I'm sorry to put you on the spot because that could probably be another podcast itself. It's very interesting, particularly because of the types of organizations I go into. It always seems to be you have to get senior management on board to affect any change. Uh, I want to know if, if that's the same for yourselves. No, absolutely not. It really is the short answer. I think um, I think change can come from any avenue, but I think basically when you've got, it's always a pyramid structure, right? So, you know, the, the junior positions, there's more people. <laughs> and I think the bigger bracket you take from, the more, the more information you're going to be able to get from a wider demographic. And I think that's so important to have that mix of diverse backgrounds, um, ideas, stories, religions, to create that culture. Um, sadly, I do think though that any kind of DNI initiatives or anything that can kind of help and support is decided. Those decisions are made by the top dogs, um, and that's that becomes a money thing in companies. And uh, yeah, that's the kind of the, yeah the negative aspect, of it, I guess. But no, I think it should be led by by the mass, by the company. It's something we we picked up on the other day. There's well, Amy, about kind of when we're talking about quotas and targets within organizations and actually we're so led with targets at these junior levels that we need x amount of black employees we need x amount of asian employees we need x amount of lgbt representation gender split um but actually mm. quotas aren't needed at that level the quotas are needed more at senior level i know debbie we've spoken about it as well um and i think actually to make more of a change in cultural change within an organization i hate using the term culture um but to actually have those targets at senior level, to bring in that diversity at senior level, that's going to change the mindset. And then it's going to filter down within the organization. Yes, it's a very long game, but I think that in itself is something that that could make more of an impact. Debbie, what's your what's your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, you know, Chris, we've had this conversation, right, at length. And it goes back from my own um, my own experience is that it really from that perspective if you want to make an effect real change right and i mean real cultural change um the initiatives it is a top-down approach it's also a bottom-up right that there's a two-level way right it's not i don't believe in a one-size-fits-all no it's top-down because you do need the purse strings you need a budget to drive this, right? If you think you're gonna roll out all these initiatives and frankly, you're not running a budget, what are you doing? You're, you're basically then just doing a tick box exercise, right? Yeah. And it's time wasting. It really is for the organization, for yourself. It's time is money, right? So 
if you're going to make real systemic cultural change in a positive dimension, you do need the buy-in of the C-suite, right? And I've been in the position where I learned, I failed and I failed pretty damn quickly, but I learned from it. And you need that buy-in because if you don't have that, you can't have that ripple effect across the organization. The reality, particularly in travel, travel tech, you know, that grassroots level, it's great. It looks, it really is there. You've got the di diversity from a demographic, from a gender point of view, you know, if you look at it from every angle, but it's as you come up the pyramid, so to speak, right? And if we talk about quotas, you know, do I agree that quotas need to exist at the top across organizations? Yeah, I think they're very viable because that is when you really start to see the change happen. But quotas have to be yeah. aligned with the person's skill set, right? It's not just about sticking an Asian person, a black person in a role just for the sake of increasing that. It's got to be aligned with the person being able to do the job. I wouldn't want to have just got the MD role just because I have the color of my skin. I would have wanted to got the MD role because I know yeah. I could bloody well exactly. do the job. So it, there's a yeah. two part yeah. to it, right? Um, and that I, I contribute as a woman. Right, so there's a third part to it as well, but the value that I can bring to the organization. So yeah. Yeah, and that feeds in, you know, the whole um, kind of, I don't know if you saw in the news a couple of weeks ago, I was reading about it. Um, Chris, I think we spoke about it as well, the legal in general. Yes. They've decided now they own, legal will own something like 3% of every FTSE 100 company. Um, and they said that they will not support fundamentally um, the board, the chairman of the board in any of the companies if they haven't hired at least one ethnic minority person on that board by January 2022. And I was saying it's quite a radical move. It's quite sort of like there's, there's a lot of things that are complicated with that. But unfortunately, we're still at stage where that, that kind of um, a really radical kind of move is needed. That's what's needed right now. Um, I think, yeah, it's problematic in many ways, but like you say, I think we need to make those strong moves to make things happen because it's just not going to happen otherwise. Definitely. I think um, Joe sent me an article um, about a week ago that I posted on, on LinkedIn yesterday regarding um, there being more men within C-suite roles within the FTSE 100 being called Steve than what there are women and people who, who would fit into minority, which just... So you know, <laughs> and the, the government made an announcement that by 2020, 33% of these roles would be filled by women. Um, and I'd love to see the stats. I'd love to see if that has actually been achieved or if it's kind of been washed over by, well, we've had COVID this year. We've had other things that, that have happened. And um, it'll be interesting to see kind of how that unfolds going, going forward. Um, we've had some questions. Sorry, John. I was only going to say that's exactly what I was looking for, yeah. Chris, at the time. Was trying to find um, clear, clear statistics, and that's about the only thing I could find. Um, so, so if 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 they're out there, um, I suspect they are buried and quite difficult to find. Um, but that that one statistic on its own, I think, is um, quite, yeah. quite quite disturbing almost. Um, and it shows how much work yeah. we still have. Most definitely, not just in this country. I think in the states as well. I think the the name Dave is has holds one of the same statistics. And I remember an artist a couple of years ago had done this um, piece where he got all the faces of all the, the 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 top companies within the states and blended them all together, and they all looked the same, all exactly the same. I'll try and find it and I'll send it to everybody because it would just. It, 
yeah, it, it blew my mind. Um, so we've kind of gone over an hour a little bit, but we're, we are still live, so people are still with us. Uh, so thank you if you are still with us. We have some questions as well, which is quite exciting. Some points have been made by some of the discussion that we've had as well. So Rob Mason, uh, hello, Rob. Rob is a good friend of mine. I've known him for a number of years through the university. Um, Rob's comment is, uh, I agree with Amy, we need to think about inclusion. Uh, with inclusion, it's up to each of us to look left and right to include everyone to achieve success, especially now with so much remote working. Um, would everyone agree with that? Yeah, we're getting a lot of nodding heads, so that's good. <laughs> um, and then we've had Els Hall Fairman as well. Um, Els uh, commented that she loved Debbie's point of view on unconscious bias. It's not a silver bullet. Um, she has seen that their unconscious bias training gives people that aha moment uh, as if the light bulbs went on. It's made a difference in their recruitment practices. So um, it's great that it being delivered has had that 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 effect. Um, I think sometimes we might need to change the narrative a little bit with unconscious bias training. Something that we try and do is kind of approach it from a completely different angle um, through the workshops that, that we do as well. So that was a little plug for us. Um, it was smooth. Um, and uh, we've also had Rob again. Uh, so Rob is on it this afternoon. I love it. Um, Sa, thank you for sharing the difficulties of dyslexia. Great to be able to see success from your strength uh, for others. The then manage the, the manage the day to day. So, um, <laughs> um, Rob's made a, another comment as well. Um, how do we find the right mentors with our networks to help team members and our children to have inspirational guidance, especially when our senior leaders are so busy training, uh, so so training versus mentorship. So, how do we ensure we get the right mentors in place if our senior leaders are always busy? How do we make that time, Debbie? Okay, so mentorship is very different to sponsorship. Yeah. So run that question because the question actually sounds more for me like sponsorship, right? Because mentorship doesn't necessarily have to be someone within your organization, right? Yeah. I have two mentors of my own who are not, right, who are both actually men. Um, but, you know, they have a vested interest in my success, right? Internally, where I was before, I had a sponsor who had an interest in me moving up, so supported that. So it's a question of, are you looking for a mentor, which is very different to what a sponsor is. And sponsor, you can both get them internally, yeah. but the, the mechanics are quite different. Yes. Yeah. So I suppose the question was, how do we find the right mentors within our networks? So it could be within your organization, it could be within your, your own network as well for yeah, us and our children as well um i think i think you know um i think from the from the child's point of view listen uh you know i've got two kids of my own um <laughs> you know i am their mentor right yeah. <laughs> i'm the parent and that's where yeah. it starts okay so so the question for me that's a very straight answer right if you've got teenagers i would definitely say within the family circle right within a family circle even extend it to friends right who are within perhaps your social circle, given that we are in COVID time as well, right? So I'm trying to keep it quite relevant. Um, but from a professional point of view, and you're looking at mentors within your own circle, it depends what you're trying to get out of, right? And that's really important. From a mentorship point of view, what are you? Is it about succession? Is it about career development? 
Um, is it about a guide to sort of support you on your journey? And that will that will really support. Are you looking for somebody who looks like you, right? Mm -hmm. So there's that mirroring factor that comes in because if you're a female, does having another female make you feel more comfortable to be able to share, um, to open? Or yeah. are you quite comfortable having a mentor who's a male because there's less of a power struggle perhaps for you, right? So, yeah. Hmm. I, I to, to challenge it a little bit then and to challenge mm -hmm. Rob's question is obviously we've talked about finding mentors and mentees within our own circles and within our own networks and communities. However, if you, for instance, the background myself and Joe come from is, is higher education, specifically focusing on widening participation students as well, it might not be easy to mm -hmm. get that mentor from within your circle because you could be first in family to, to go to university. So actually no one can talk you through that because they've not had that experience. So I suppose, Amy, I'm going to come to you because of what Become does. Um, I, I suppose it's really important for the, for the work that you're doing is actually supporting the, this underrepresented group, I suppose, to, to kind of into mentorship and, and kind of what they can achieve. Yes. Definitely. I've always like massively in power of mentorship. I think it's just, I've always had mentors, like Debbie said, that they are um, very different to me as well. It's two white men are my mentors and they are incredible. Um, and um, I feel honored that they have taken an interest in my career and helping me. I think um, sometimes that can be the most valuable advice when it's someone who's completely different to you. Um, you know, their experiences will be different <laughs> fundamentally. So, um, I, you know, at Become, we do offer mentorship opportunities for young women of colour. Um, and the whole kind of premise there is that they want to get their foot in the door as well. So all of our mentors belong to organisations that can offer internships, um, apprenticeship programmes, sponsorships, I mean, just opportunity, basically. Because that's what we found is, yeah, sometimes the networking isn't there from friends or family and yeah. you need to get it somewhere else. So um, we're kind of, yeah, giving them that leg up to get into a business and, and find themselves a career that suits them um, so we have over 50 mentors now who are currently helping mentor our um, community of, of women um, so if there's anyone out there who's interested please um, sign up to become newsletter become the program um, and that's my plug down I, <laughs> <laughs> I love it I love it um, we've had one more comment from Rob as well so like Rob's He's a massive advocate for, for D&I and what we're trying to achieve. And he's made a comment around, uh, did I say the, that following logos, et cetera, is herd mentality? So when we talk about companies who are changing the, the color of their, their icons or their logos to celebrate different things, um, is it herd mentality by going after these companies and, and actually provoking them? Like, what, what are you doing? What, what's the change that you're actually making? Um, Sal, I'll come to you. Um, so we have ERG groups, um, employee resource groups, and which we have uh, a number of uh, our members who uh, group together once a month and we talk about a particular issue that is close to us. Um, we picked up an issue of infertility, so talking about infertility in the workplace. And I know that I think in a couple of months or so, it's going to be Infertility Week. But I, I wasn't aware, I totally, you know, wasn't focusing on Infertility uh, Week being a, a week that we need to get out there, make sure our branding's yeah. in, in line with, with, with the messaging. Um, we went ahead and did the conversation, the, you know, a month ago, a month ago, probably a couple of weeks ago now, um, uh, to, to have that dialogue and create that dialogue internally and then make sure that dialogue goes up to the top so we can implement changes, changes within our policy. 
um, I think I've gone off track here, but I think like with Black History Month, it shouldn't be a month of Black History. It should be every month. You know, these training yeah. programs and conscious training and conscious bias training um, and any other programs that you do have, it needs to be continuous. And I feel as though if you're completing a module, you know, once a year or whatever it is that these companies are doing, it's just not sufficient enough. Yeah, I completely agree. Stuart, do you have any comments? Um, just following on from what Sarah said, uh, I agree it shouldn't be a, a once in a month which is on our agenda, like Halloween almost. Halloween comes around every October, so we prep for Halloween, and now it's over, so we wait, and then we prep again for it next year. It should be an ongoing thing. It, it should just be a something we have in the calendar yeah. that we do once a year. Joe, any, any comments as well? So, um, yeah, this, and this is something you and I have spoken about, Chris, um, already with, with things like um, the Social Mobility Pledge, for example, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and how organizations have signed up for it. Great. What are you now doing now that you've signed it? And it's holding that accountability. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think it is absolutely something we should be doing. Um, otherwise, you know, what, what, what are you achieving if you're just changing your flag? Um, if you're, you're changing the color of something on your logo, maybe it's, it's great for now. But mm. then what are, what are you doing long term about that? And, and the point about um just having like a, a like black history month for example almost says so is it white history month for everything else is it not yes. just history and as a, as a student of history that's that's kind of the way i think it should be viewed that it is all history um so yeah i i agree it's something that should definitely be done um if if you're gonna say that you're doing it if you're gonna take part you should continue it and be held to account for it yeah, I think touching on that as well with obviously being coming towards the end of Black History Month, I think we've seen a lot of knee-jerk reactions this year on the back of Black Lives Matter, which have been great because it started the conversation within organisations. However, I know, Amy, we've discussed this at, at length about um, a number of DNI roles out there. And, and Debbie, we've had this conversation as well, that there's DNI roles out there that are very short-term contracts. And actually, you're really not going to make an impact on an organization within 12 months. You're only really going to get started within the first 12 months of, of being in that business and actually invoking change with, within the organization. So <clears throat> I think there needs to be longevity in everything that we do. We should be constantly having these conversations with each other, with our peers, with our managers, with our, with our um, uh, co-workers as well about, okay, so what can we do? And like you said, Black History Month, like our, our, our training around privilege or our unconscious bias, it should be constant and everybody should be doing it all the time. And actually, oh, we've got a dog on the screen. Yay. Uh, <laughs> um, and also, um, I've lost my trail of thought now because there's a puppy on the screen. <laughs> um, but I think um, we should be doing this training every single year within an organization. It's not just a, we're going to do unconscious bias training and then you never, ever do it again. It should be every single year because things change, things evolve within society and kind of what we're talking about. And um, like there's changes within protected characteristics. There's, there's changes within meanings within protected characteristics. So we need to be having this constant conversation and this behavior that we're constantly learning every single year in order to, to make a difference. 
Um, we've had one last comment, and it's from someone that um, a lot of us know on this call, uh, Rita. Rita Varga from WHTT. Uh, Rita has said, related to how we can encourage our organizations to become advocates for their own communities as well as advocates for other communities as well. Hashtag bring your whole self to work, hashtag allyship. So I think that's a really nice way to end it. Thank you, Rita, for your, your comments. Um, I just want to say a big thank you to Debbie, Stuart, Joe, Amy, and Sa for joining me uh, this afternoon. This will be available on demand, um, so you'll be able to watch it to your heart's content over a nice cup of tea. Today, I have been drinking um, pumpkin spice pie by Bird and Blend. It's it's like autumn in a cup. It's just it's really nice. Uh, yeah. So. Um, and uh, yeah, feel free to to connect with our, our guests as well on on LinkedIn and social media as well. Um, and we will see you again next time. We will be doing another live episode of the Diversity Avengers at the end of November um, in line with our circle. Jim has just dropped a comment in as well. So Jim is, is running the, this event at the end of November. So there'll be more details to follow about that coming soon. If you've liked what we're doing, check out our LinkedIn page at your DNI um, or visit the website www.yourdni.co.uk. Um, and yes, we shall see you again soon. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you all. Take care.